Okay, so I'm going to put a little space right here for the theme song. I mean, we don't have one yet, but we will. So. <laughs> Perfection takes time. Okay, so wasn't that a great theme song? We're back. It's another episode of Vertigo Voices. I'm Colby. I'm Sophia. And we're going to be talking some more Vertigo comics, doing the whole damn thing. Welcome what back. <laughs> uh, so, first thing, phone check. We're good. We're good. Sure. <laughs> I'm positive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks to your, uh, thanks you'll, to your tutelage. Uh, <laughs> you'll have to excuse me if I don't take your word for it. So. <laughs> you'll be so proud this time. You'll see. <laughs> okay, next news. News? News. Yes. That's going to be the name of the segment now. News? News. <laughs> First bit of news, uh, the Why the Last Man pilot series, whatever. I don't know if it's going straight to series or just the pilot, whatever, has officially started filming again. They're redoing the whole damn thing again, which I think is like the third or fourth time. Uh, a few changes have been made. Number one, Ampersand is now going to be CGI. Okay. Apparently PETA got up in arms about them hiring a monkey, and they had, I, I don't know, they, they had a bunch of complaints about that, and I think the production was just like, fuck it, fine, we'll do a goddamn CGI monkey. Um, PETA, you ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. Their reasons may be valid, who knows, I just know it's PETA, and 99% of the time, it's not. So. Yeah. <laughs> Peter ruins everything. Yeah. Then the other big news about that, 355 and Hero have been recast. Oh. So those were the two, like, big names in this originally. 355 was Lashana Lynch from Captain Marvel. She was oh, yes. Maria Rambo. Mm -hmm. And Hero was Imogen Poots. Oh, so. From lots of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know? lots of stuff. She's actually, I'll get to it in a minute. Um, <laughs> So yeah, they've been recast. I saw who the new actresses are, but I don't remember. So it's not no Lashana Lynch and uh, no Imogen Poots. So uh, you know who knows? This thing could be good. Um, skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> they took away arguably the two biggest leads or the two biggest lead actors from the show and replaced them with people that are at least no names to me. Granted, there are some other big names in it, but I like. Like, Timothy Hutton, like, he's not going to survive the first episode, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the guy that plays Yorick, I can't even remember his name, other than his last name is difficult to pronounce. And, I don't know. We'll see. Whatever. There's been so many variations of this over the last 15 years that, who knows... I mean, fuck, who knows if this is even actually going to happen? <laughs> it's not like celluloid is rolling... Well, actually, I don't know. Celluloid might be rolling. But... It's also happened before. Like, we've already filmed this two or three times. Right. So, like, a year and a half ago, there was a promo image of Yorick wearing the gas mask, like, walking through a deserted city. And whatever happened to that version? Who, who knows, right? So, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if this happens or not. The other big news of Vertigo adaptations is that Sandman filming is well underway now. I read an interview with Neil Gaiman where he talked about being on set and seeing that. And he says, I've been watching the dailies, but nothing produced the profound emotional reaction on me that watching a camera test of our Morpheus in his glass prison did. I saw him and I said, oh, this is Sandman. Yay. Yeah. We'll take it. I mean, the fact that Neil is that involved in the production is a good sign. And the article further went on to have him... Uh, explain what, what the first season is going to be made up of. He said specifically 24 hours is being adapted. The infamous issue where everyone gets murdered in the diner. 
uh, Dream a Little Dream of Me. He said it's also going to be adapted. That's the issue that features Constantine, the bag of sand and everything. Mm -hmm. I still don't think Constantine's going to be in it, so we'll see how that gets worked around. Uh, and then Hope in Hell, which is the issue where Dream goes to hell. So curious to see who's going to play Lucifer. And then Collectors, which is the serial killer convention storyline. Those are all going to be in the first season. And then after this interview, I read like a tweet from him where somebody asked him about death, like who's playing death. And he said he can't say anything yet, but all he'll say is after you watch the episode Sound of Her Wings, there will not be any doubt as to this is the perfect death. Okay. And then he followed up that tweet with saying, what am I talking about? This is the fanboy internet culture. Of course, of course there's going to be doubt. Of course there's going to be people talking shit about this. But to me personally, she's, good. she's perfect. <laughs> oh, well, we have faith, Mr. Gaiman. We do. That's some fabulous news. Yeah. And then, um, not really news, but this is the other segment. This is not really news, but we're still going to talk about it. Uh, have you watched anything good lately? Oh my goodness. Um, I rewatched Brick. You remember that one? Ooh, Ryan Johnson. Yeah. It's yes. Good. Really, really good movie. Weird neo noir high school movie. <laughs> right. It, you wouldn't think that that would work in a high school movie, but it does. It yeah. works brilliantly. Yeah. And oh, oh, um, after our conversation last time, I watched uh, High Tension again. Oh, yeah. That movie is dumb. It's yeah. dumb. I mean, there's things about it I like, but like you were talking about before, when you see the reveal, you're just like, oh, that's really dumb. <laughs> there are some deleted scenes that kind of link that a little better. I mean, spoiler alert, the reveal is that the main character is the killer. Right. And that she's been projecting this idea of a serial killer the whole time. But there's, there's a deleted scene where she like finds that van at the beginning of the movie. Oh. Hmm. But they deleted it because they felt like it was too obvious then. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like the acting is good, the gore is good, the action is good, but and it's not to say that you can never do that plot device ever because it's been done so many times, but it's been done so many times and it's been done better. So when I got there, I was like, I was having a really good time up until I got there, and I was like, why did I hate this movie so much? And then I was like, oh, well, that's why. It's still not enough for me to dislike it. Um, you know, I mean, two thirds of a good movie is still two thirds of a good movie. Yeah, but it's kind of like like someone offering you a cupcake and then slapping it out of your mouth. It's, I feel like it's more like somebody, somebody letting you eat half of a cupcake <laughs> and then digging the rest out of your mouth. Some, I don't know. Spit it out! Spit it out! Neither of these is a perfect analogy. No. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> but anyway, how about yourself? I watched uh, the remake of Martyrs. Mm. <laughs> yeah. How did that go? So the director of the remake had said, this isn't a remake or a reboot. It's more of a reimagining, which I fucking hate that kind of weaselly language. It's not. It's a goddamn remake. <laughs> the first 45 minutes are exactly the same, just way condensed. And then the last half an hour, it's really short too. I think it's only like 90 minutes. The last half an hour or so goes way off the fucking rails. It literally turns into an action movie. I gotta save my friends. Oh. Yeah, um, it has not the same ending, but, well, not even close to the same. It's got a way toned down ending that is way less nihilistic. There's like this, hey, maybe things are going to be okay. <laughs> and the, the friend that dies, you know, that like kills herself halfway through the movie, you know, mm -hmm. 
In this one, she survives till the end. <laughs> and they save a little kid, too. <laughs> and there's a shootout. Like, literally, the main character is, like, going through the compound, gunning down the bad guys. It's so fucking mainstream American popcorn movie bullshit, which is the exact opposite of what the original Martyrs is. <laughs> right, right. Like, you, throughout that whole story, I mean, does anyone watching that think, oh, there's going to... Yeah. Be a happy ending with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is stunningly, aggressively poorly conceived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, yeah, not a maybe good grasp of the yeah. original. I don't know. So I will see your high tension and raise you one Martyrs remake. <laughs> yeah, you win. You win. <laughs> the other movie that I watched this week was V for Vendetta. Oh, yes. Of course, on uh, November 5th, I had to give that movie an old rewatch. It feels weird to say this as a negative, but that movie has aged amazingly. Really? <laughs> yeah. Which is, that's just a testament to how fucked up the world is. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> that movie is way more prescient and vital now than it was in 2005. Well, that's slightly depressing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's, there's scenes in it. So there's a scene in the movie where the inspector is like thinking through in his mind how things are going to go. And then it shows this kid spray painting on um, one of those, like, England Prevails signs. A cop sees her, and as she runs off, the cop shoots her in the back, and then the cop is surrounded by an angry mob, and then it turns into a riot. Like, that's something that was interesting concept, and I'm granted it definitely happened in 2005, but it wasn't as pervasive in the public consciousness as it is now. Indeed. Yeah. And yeah, the movie was very prophetic in so many ways. And especially watching it right after an election while they're slowly counting votes. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Oh. There's literally, like, there was no better time to watch that movie <laughs> than just the other day. Incredibly and sadly relevant. Especially V's whole speech about giving up your rights for security. And he's like, yeah, there's, there's plenty of people to blame for this and they will be held accountable. But truth be told, if you want to blame somebody, just look in the mirror. You did this. You all voted for this. <laughs> and that was one of those things, like, that's, I don't know, similar to what I've been saying for the last four years, is that, like, you know, fuck, man, we all allowed this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. Right. That um, segues go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. I was talking with a journalist friend of mine just the other day, in fact, and we were talking about that very same thing about it's always a big deal when there's a presidential election. Everyone mm-hmm. all of a sudden becomes a constitutional lawyer yeah. and an activist. But at the same time, we just have such a, we as a collective have a poor grasp of the civics that affect our day-to-day lives. Like, mm-hmm. you know, can you, and I'm not pointing fingers here, but like, can you name You're the, saying that as you are literally pointing a finger at me right now. How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> it, was a, it was a general pointing. <laughs> You are up in my face. I want the record to show that Sophie is violently wagging a finger right into my nose. She is not respecting social distancing at all. But like seriously, like how many people can you name on your kid's school board? Or like, do you know all of your city council members? No, of course not. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't care about any of those positions. I'm worried about the fucking presidency right now. Well, most people are, but you know. <laughs> it kind of ties in with it all. Just saying. Mm-hmm. That's my, you know, ever enlightened yeah. observation for the day. Uh, the other thing about V for Vendetta, do you remember, when was the last time you saw that movie? Probably 2007 or 2008. Oh, wow. Have, have you read the comic? I have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the character of Valerie? Yes. So young Valerie in the movie is played by Imogen Poots. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> as it was, as she's like on the screen telling her story, I was like, that looks a lot like Imogen Poots. Like the this would be around the time that she was in uh, what's that movie called? Uh, Twenty eight weeks later. Oh, she was in that too. Yeah, that's okay. the first thing I remember her from. But I was, I was like, that looks a lot like her. And then during the end credits, she's like, you know, fortieth listed, like <laughs> buried in the credits. Like, hey, that was her. <laughs> Because she doesn't have any dialogue. She's just in a couple flashbacks. She's just there, yeah. Very, very important character in the narrative. Six degrees of poots. That's the other new segment. Talking poots. All poots all the time. <laughs> Stick around. We'll have more for you. <laughs> um, oh, I've been calling Viva Vendetta like a kind of vertigo story. Because it was originally written for Warrior Magazine back in the early 80s or mid-80s, whenever that was. And Alan Moore didn't finish it in Warrior Magazine because I think that magazine like went under. So then in the late 80s, DC republished the first few issues and then allowed Moore and David Lloyd to finish it. And it, I think it was a 12-issue miniseries or something. But then in the late 90s, Vertigo republished it in one, one edition as V for Vendetta, and it had the little Vertigo sticker on the side or whatever. But in the movie, the opening credits have the Vertigo logo. Mm -hmm. So it's officially a Vertigo thing now, you know? Okay. So I've always been like, well, it's kind of a Vertigo story. But no, it's definitively yeah. a Vertigo story. <laughs> it was adopted. Had I planned this out better, we would have already read it and watched the movie for this November 5th, but I guess that'll be something for next year. We'll get around to it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and speaking of going back to Sandman, didn't you have some some Sandman news? Just a wee I, for, I forgot about that. <laughs> just a, just a tiny nugget. Just wanted to say happy birthday to Neil Gaiman. His birthday is coming up here on November 10th. Thank you for all the good stories. Keep up the good work. Cheers, cheers. I mean, Gaiman is essentially like the patron saint of vertigo comics I, <laughs> thinking back so I, I in my mind have been thinking about you know what to read next and what should we talk about next and so many of the stories i want to talk about go right back to to gaming you know mm -hmm. like I, i'd love to spend an episode on neverwhere oh that'd be fun because there was a vertigo adaptation of it but that's not really yep it's really good um okay. mike, mike carey did the writing and uh glenn fabry did the art all right then and that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably, we'll get into that later. It's been adapted a lot, and I own and love all the adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to read the comic book, definitely, because I love the book. Yeah. Do you have a Gaiman story like that? Like, your, your big one? Uh, no, honestly. I just, there's so many that I love. I mean, Norse Gods, of course, um, which I think has been turned into a comic book, hasn't it? Yeah, but not, wait, no. American Gods has. Oh, American Gods. And it wasn't my to go. <laughs> no. Nope. It's no Norse mythology. There's Norse mythology and American Gods. Those yes. are two different books. Pardon me. It's like Coraline, yeah. um, everywhere. The, the His short story collections are mm -hmm. fantastic. The Ocean at the End of the Lane. I would love to see that turned into a movie or a comic book. Uh, yeah, the guy just has so many good ones. I'm Right now I'm really in love with The Ocean at the End of the Lane because that's the last prose book of his that I read. Coraline, and I know that's a, I don't know, I mean, because that's meant for kids, and I didn't read that until I was an adult, and I was like, this is awesome. That's <laughs> yeah, a good book. It is. I read it when I was in college. I still have my Newbery award-winning version of it, or whatever. But it's, it's fantastically creepy, and yeah. that's what I like about it, is that, you know, he, you can read him as a kid, and you can grow with him into adulthood. Yeah. I'm, my only complaint is that I didn't discover him until I was an adult. Well, that's not true. I was in high school. 
close enough. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a good time to establish a relationship. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. When I met him, because you know I've met Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> when I when I met him, I gave him my copy of. Sandman, Endless Nights to Sign, and I, I was like, I just want to let you know I'm a huge fan, and, you know, when I, I discovered Sandman when I was in high school, and, like, it really spoke to me, and I just devoured that series, and I've read everything since, and he gave me this, like, very earnest look, and he's like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that little, that little piece right there just makes me so happy, I'm like, yeah. cool. <laughs> I have a picture with him somewhere, I think it's on, I don't know, I'm sure it's on my Facebook somewhere, but. It's from 2007, 2008, 2000, I don't know, whatever. It was a while ago. He came to Helena, Montana and gave a, a talk. Oh, fun. <laughs> Hanging out with the Dream King. Yes, there it is. <laughs> no, I, I, if that were me, like, that would be my background photo forever. <laughs> like, forever. All right, so it has been proven that I do, in fact, have a photo with Neil Gaiman. <laughs> and my envy is just even more compounded. <laughs> So what is the main story we're going to be talking about today? All right. We are going back to one of your favorites, Hellblazer Dangerous Habits. That's true. Yeah, written by Garth Ennis with art by William Simpson. Okay, so William Simpson was the penciler. Mark Pennington, Tom Sutton, Malcolm Jones III, Mark McKenna, Kim DeMolder, and Stan Walk were the inkers. See, this is nice. This is a nice, concise title page with everyone listed. Who did the covers? Oh, it was Tom Canty. There you have it. <laughs> who was the letter? Gaspar. Gaspar. That's who. Just Gaspar? Just Gaspar. With an introduction by Garth Ennis. And then this edition, though, the cover of it is by Glenn Fabry. I... I've gotten rid of most of my Hellblazer graphic novels because I have the entire run in single issue. But this is the one that I haven't been able to give up. This and Original Sins. The two I haven't been able to give up. This one because of the cover art. Like, you can't find this cover art anywhere else. It's, it's a beautiful cover. Yeah. And then Original Sins just because it's the first volume. It's nice to have. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sometimes you just got to hang on to the originals. So this was issues, I think, 41 through 44. Five or 46, I can't remember. It's like four or five issues. It was Garth Ennis' first few issues on Hellblazer, and it was also his first American comic. Oh, his first American comic? Yep. Oh, I did not realize that. He did a great job. He'd written for Judge Dredd, he did a story called True Faith, and he wrote a comic, a uh, story in a comic called uh, Crisis. Never mind, that was True Faith that <laughs> was in Crisis. <laughs> he wrote another story, like he wrote this series, I think called Troubles. Or something like that. Okay, that was also, sorry, that was also in <laughs> Crisis, uh-huh. which is a magazine. He wrote a story called Troubled Souls and then a sequel for A Few Troubles More. And then those characters uh, ended up showing up later in an Avatar press series called Dicks. So he has a, uh, uh, an extensive career then, yeah. to say the least. But yes, and he's, he's 50. He was born in 1970. This came out in the early 90s. Yeah, he's been writing comics since he was like 17. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's fucking insane. (laughs) (laughs) Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but he also did a lot of work on Preacher, right? He he did all of Preacher. All of Preacher, Preacher was his baby. In fact, one of the major plot points in Preacher 
the fact that Genesis is the offspring of an angel and demon having an affair, that's from Hellblazer. Oh, okay. There's uh, Ellie's backstory. That's, that's Ellie's backstory. She's a demon, fell in love with an angel, they had a kid, and John tried to help her out. And the kid ended up getting taken away by angels. Nobody knows if it was killed or being locked away or what. But that plot point was then put into Preacher as, like, the inciting incident of that whole series. Ha, ha, ha. Clever. Okay. All right. But going back to Hellblazer, specifically Dangerous Habits, I know everyone is patiently waiting. What is the book report for this? (laughs) If Sweet Magnolias was good. What is Sweet Magnolias? (laughs) You remember, it was that movie that came out, I think, like, in the early 90s with Julia Roberts and Dolly Parton. And... Steel Magnolias? Yeah, that's what I said. You said Sweet Magnolias. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am sick, and I haven't had any coffee except this one cup, so just roll with me, Also, people. just so you know, last time we recorded, when we were talking about Halloween movies, and you said the 21st... You said Halloween was on the 21st, and I called you on it. You were like, no, I didn't. I saw the 31st. I've listened back. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Now I'm feverishly pointing. (laughs) And it's a deserved point. Okay. I will take that point. (laughs) Humbly. Okay. Okay, so Steel Magnolias. Why are we we fucking talking about Steel Magnolias? (laughs) I'll get there. There's a point. It may not be a very good point, but I'll get there. So if... Steel Magnolias, if Julia Roberts was not Julia Roberts and instead was an acerbic occultist that lived in early 1990s London and was diagnosed with cancer and had to find a way out and not your conventional way out and be faced with their own mortality at the same time, that is dangerous habits in a nutshell. So you just said, if Steel Magnolias was a completely different story... (laughs) Then you'd have this. That's true, I guess. And if it was rated R. (laughs) I find that this is a lot like the video game Super Mario 3. (laughs) Only if Mario were a British occultist. (laughs) I would would play that game. (laughs) John Constantine, or Constantine, depending on who you talk to. He has cancer, diagnosed with lung cancer, smoking since he was 17. At first, he's having... Uh, Well, he's having a very hard time accepting his fate. Or does he have to? And that's kind of where the book goes down the the supernatural path. Except, um, well, like you said, a lot of of what happens here, and I I know we're going to ruin it, but, like, I came to this book, this is the first time I read this book, Mm -hmm. per your recommendation, and it's a really, really good book. And if you've never read Hellblazer before, I mean, there are a couple names in here that I'm like, I don't know who those people yeah. are. It doesn't matter. Honestly, most of the characters that are referred to in here are new. Oh, really? It's just okay. that they build up this backstory of John. Like Kit Ryan, she's introduced in this. Brendan Finn, he's introduced in this. But they have like this ingrained backstory that John knew them for years and Spent time with them when they were younger and blah, blah, blah. But th- that's all new information in this. Okay, all right. Same with Ellie. I think this introduced her. Oh, was this the first time yeah. she pops up? And Gabriel. <laughs> ah, okay then. So all that to say that, listeners, if you haven't read this book before, just stop right now, go read this book, and then come back. Because there's a lot in here that, I don't know if you'd classify it as spoilers, but what we're going to, well, yeah, spoilers. And 
I think it's best if you come to this fresh and you don't know how he's going to handle this very human issue. And so that was a rather long book report. But <laughs> just just go, you know what? Just go watch Steel Magnolias and you'll be completely caught exactly. up. Exactly. You will know. <laughs> you will know. So I distinctly remember the first time I read this, this copy that I have. Um, I bought this from a Borders Books in Portland, Oregon. I was on vacation with my family and my friend Tyler when I was, I think, in, uh, I was probably sophomore, junior, uh, I think it was a sophomore in high school. We went to Portland. I bought this at a bookstore at the beginning of the vacation, and I spent the rest of the time just voraciously reading it <laughs> any chance that I got. And uh, I also remember I was getting a cold while I was reading it. I don't know why those memories are also so clear to me, but I just very distinctly remember reading this book and being blown away by it. Because this wasn't the first Vertigo story that I'd read, and God knows I've been reading comics my whole fucking life. But I think this was the first one that had so little going on. Mm -hmm. There's no action in this. There's no foot chases or punch-ups or exploding buildings or anything. It's just a very quiet story about a desperate man doing everything he can to stay alive. Exactly. And hence the Steel Magnolias comparison. Because usually uh, a lot of the time in popular media, anyone out there, if you're a huge Steel Magnolias fan or like, you know, we wear pink because I'm not coming for you. So please just take this with a grain of salt. So often cancer is depicted as like, you know, in movies or in comic books, when a character is sick, you're like, wow, you're effulgent for having cancer. (laughs) You look great. A lot of the most terrifying stuff that happens in this book isn't like, demons or monsters yeah it's like there's a really gross but very well drawn panel where he hacks up a piece of his lung yeah yeah. and he's just like the look of terror and shock on his face is just so good that you feel the same thing the friend he meets in the hospital like that yeah who's already well into his terminal cancer diagnosis and John basically is looking into the future at himself (laughs) at this withered old man who is clinging to the last painful moments of his life and and just how uncompromising that is mm. you know there's no there's no good way out of this <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i'm just going to go right ahead and and say that i really really appreciated this book and i really liked it i mean i was already excited to read it based on your recommendation but now i feel like this is probably you know in the Top two of books that we've read so far. Uh, So Garth Ennis has also written a whole lot of other, you know, Vertigo stuff, like we mentioned, and just other popular, well-regarded comics. But Comic Book Resources listed the best Garth Ennis stories, and this was listed as number one. It beat out Preacher, The Boys, his run on The Punisher. It's incredibly well-regarded, not just by Hellblazer or Vertigo fans, but just in general. Most comic book fans, even if they've never read Hellblazer, they've at least heard of Dangerous Habits, or at least they know the story, basically. It's one of those, like, legendary comic stories. Everyone knows about the time John got cancer. I can see why you have such strong memories tied to it. It's also one of the few Hellblazer stories that's been adapted. The impetus for this story was used in the Constantine movie, of John getting lung cancer goes in a completely different direction. <laughs> <laughs> But it's still there. I mean, if you listen to the commentary soundtrack, you get to hear me whine about that for a good chunk of it. But I think, 
I think that's probably what lets me down about that movie so much is the conclusion is so diametrically different than this. Absolutely. John is the is the consummate con man. Mm-hmm. And in the movie he doesn't he doesn't con anyone. He, no. If anything, he gets conned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he acts early for a good portion of the movie and <laughs> then resorts to desperation. And that uh I already had, you know, uh, I wasn't that excited about the movie to begin with. I was like, oh, it's okay. But having read this now, I'm like, oh, man, this would have been such a better movie if Hollywood had been ready for it. Because in the comics, First and the Fallen's been around for a while. John's always fucking him over, and they've got the really antagonistic relationship. So when the first finds out that John's dying, he kind of savors the moment that he's going to tear into his soul and blah, blah, blah. And the way John gets out of that is so... Perfect. <laughs> like, it's such an elegant solution, which, as we talked about in Sandman, hell is now a triumvirate. So there's the three rulers of hell. After Lucifer vacated his position in Sandman, the first of the fallen slotted in, and he now has to rule hell with Beelzebub and Azazel. Yes, right? yeah. And that's another thing. In the Sandman audio, they pronounce it Azazel. Azazel. Which doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> but, okay. But anyway, so Azazel and Beelzebub and the first of the fallen rule hell. John, after trying to get help from Gabriel and trying to get help from Ellie, I guess he does get help from Ellie. But after after kind of exhausting all of his resources, he realizes that his only chance is to then sell his soul to the other two rulers of hell. So first has a claim on it. The other two, actually, how do I think about it? That's not true, what I just said about the first. Yeah, this, I believe, is the first appearance of the first of the Fallen. Oh, is it? I was confusing him with a character in Nergal, who's a villain early on in Hellblazer. Yeah, so the first of the Fallen hates him because he, uh, he fucked him over with the, the Nazarene's piss, as he calls <laughs> yes. it. Yes, that's right, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go back and erase all that. <laughs> Rewind. So John first meets the first of the fallen in this because he has uh, a friend named Brendan who created this magical stout <laughs> uh, using a baptismal font, and he has this whole magical beer that when you when the light, uh, candles are burning, it's beer, and then when they go out, it turns into holy water. And John tricks the first of the fallen into drinking that, sends him to hell. Blah, blah. Fuck, why am I even talking about that? That doesn't matter. So the only way that John knows to save himself is to trick the two other leaders of hell into... <laughs> You'll get there. I, just, I, don't, I don't know how far back to go now. I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, do I want to erase all that? Do I want to keep any of that? Because <laughs> I've totally fucked up the whole backstory with him and the first. No, you haven't. It's salvageable. Um. So John summons the other two lords of hell, uh, Beelzebub and Azazel, sells his soul to each of those, and then kills himself. He slashes his wrists so that he knows the first is going to show up to claim his soul. And when he does, the other two show up as well. And he knows that they all have a valid claim on him. And if they all try to take it, then hell will erupt in civil war and the whole, the whole realm will be destroyed. So it behooves all of them to keep him alive for as long as humanly possible. <laughs> Which is just such a perfect ending. You know, taking these unimaginably powerful forces and making them submit to the whims of 
a drunk scouser. <laughs> <laughs> Mere mortal. Yes. And that definitely falls in line with what you were saying earlier that there is, like, in the movie, I know we said this in the commentary, but in the movie, that last act, it's an act of desperation. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's like he's run out of options. He's like, oh, so I have to do this thing. Gotta buy some time. Yeah. <laughs> and if you cut your wrist, time slows down. Apparently. Just like when you put your feet in water and look at a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and again, for the record, I've tried that so many times and my cat is so pissed at me. And it does fall in line with what you were saying earlier when he first meets the first of the fallen. It's okay to call him the devil, right? Because that's what he is. Yeah. Yeah. He is, but they never say that. Through all of DC, he's the first of the fallen. There you go. <laughs> because Lucifer, again, I, I think I went into this before, but Lucifer and the first of the fallen are two different characters. They are. But technically, whoever's ruling hell is the devil. So Lucifer was the devil, now first of the fallen's the devil. There you go. So we'll just, that, that's his shorthand for today. And it also falls in line with a theme throughout this book, which is uh, John looking back at his life and being filled with regret yeah. and remorse about how he's treated his friends and how his relationships have ended. And so it kind of makes it even better when the devil turns up to collect Brendan's soul. Mm -hmm. And you know, John, in his mind, is like, you asshole, you're not going to get away with this. Yeah. And so he tricks him into drinking yeah, the yeah, magical yeah. stout. And then it transforms back into <laughs> Nazarene's piss <laughs> or holy water. And so the devil gets kicked back into hell and he doesn't get to collect Brendan's soul. But again, it's all trickery. I think there's only one part in this book besides the summoning where he uses magic. Mm -hmm. And it's like a little bit of glamour to get into the club. Yeah, to see the snob. <laughs> the introduction of Gabriel. That's like the only scene from this that's directly adapted into the movie. It's the only scene in, I think, all of Hellblazer that has dialogue directly lifted. Uh, you're right. The whole part about, uh, well, you're going to die because you've been smoking 30 cigarettes a day since you were 17 or something like well, that. Well, specifically, John says, still keeping your all-seeing eye on me. And that's uh, that's a line in both. But. And uh, like we were discussing earlier, this is just my opinion. No offense to the artwork here, but Gabriel, I mean, he's he's a good-looking guy. Yeah. He's a good-looking guy. Tilda Swinton, I think, is much more visually striking when you see yeah. her for the first time as Gabriel. Yeah, that's true. Their situations are so different in the two stories. In this, Gabriel is essentially supposed to be like your strapping Aryan. <laughs> because as comes up later, actually, I think they mentioned it in here, he's hanging out with a member of, the, of a right-wing Aryan group. Right, yeah. And that comes to play later when John goes to get his revenge on Gabriel for not helping him. Whereas in the movie, I don't think there's any way that Tilda Swinton, like, I, you, you wouldn't look at Tilda Swinton and think, I bet she hangs out with Nazis. <laughs> no, no, you would not. You would not, no. And in the movie, it seems to imply that she's, like, hanging out in a church or something. I, yeah, Because I so. what's her name? Rachel Weiss goes there to talk to a priest. John goes to talk to Gabriel. But in this, it's like a gentleman's club. All sitting around the fire, sipping scotch. John wants his salt and vinegar crisps. <laughs> and a pint. Yeah. Speaking of those, salt and vinegar crisps, I love British potato chips. I've discovered this company called Walkers. That if you live in England, I'm sure you know all about it, but they make, they make crisps. And you can order them. You can't find them here in the U.S., but you can order them on Amazon. So I've ordered a few different packs. My favorite one was like the savory meat pack. <laughs> and it was... Uh, one, one of the baggies I got was prawn cocktail. 
Was it good? It was fine. It tasted <laughs> like cocktail sauce. Okay. Uh, the other one was uh, smoky bacon, okay. which just tastes like really, you know, that that just smoky bacon flavor. Like that's really easy to imitate. But the last one in that set was called roast chicken. Roast chicken chips. Yeah. So I opened it, took a bite of one, and it like it doesn't just taste like chicken. It tastes like fresh killed gamey like like maybe not even all the blood has been drained from it wow. <laughs> chicken like it is the strongest chicken flavor i've ever had it's like jesus christ <laughs> fresh off the chopping block yeah exactly <laughs> i was like i wow i huh that's a that's apparently popular flavor i mean it was fine after after getting over the initial surprise of it it, it was fine i was able to eat it but just recently, I ordered a bag of pickled onion chips. Oh, yeah. That actually sounds good. They're pretty good. They also have a, a couple other flavors I really want to try. One of them is beef and onion. Beef and onion. Okay. I haven't tried that one yet. And the other one was um, onion and cheese. I can go for all that. They're, they're way ahead of us in the chip game. <laughs> We're still messing around with, like, chive and cheese. Yeah. and. <laughs> I don't know. Take the take the cheddar and, and mix it with uh, sour cream and onion. I, I don't know. <laughs> Put some jalapeno in there. Um, anyway, and over here we've just got you know, this plain or barbecue. If you're feeling really crazy, you can get some sour cream and onion. <laughs> Ooh. Party night. I am continually on the hunt for the the ultimate salt and vinegar chip. Yeah, I don't know, man. I really like Tim's Cascade. They're probably the best out of all. Because I'm a big salt and vinegar fan myself. Yeah. And I think I think Tim's Cascade is my favorite. I like a nice kettle chip. Tell me if you think this, but like I used to love kettle chips, and I'll still eat them. But I really think they've like cut back on the flavor. I have no idea. <laughs> I just I like Tim's Cascade. They're probably the best one, best uh, salt and vinegar chip you can find in our market right yeah. now. If you know of one out there, please leave us a comment. <laughs> Why are we talking about chip? Where did I go with this <laughs> fucking hell? Because John was in the gentleman's oh, that's club. Right, that's right. <laughs> no, it's all it perfectly ties together. You're right. It's a, it's a real steel magnolia situation we got going. <laughs> it is right. <laughs> so okay, fuck. Um, what did you think of the character of Kit Ryan? I I really like her, and not to say, again, not to tie it too much into the movie, but since the movie is basically based on this. The, it just feels like such a simplification. Like she, if you had to have a uh, female character in there, then I feel like she would have she would have been the female character to stick in the movie yeah. that already has a, a bond with yeah, John. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Kit Kit isn't in this a whole lot. She comes back at the end, and they have their like tearful reunion and all that. But she sticks around the comic for a few more issues. I don't know, she's probably in 10 issues total, but she's really important in John's life. And she's she's like a solid character that's not to be fucked with. <laughs> and she lets John know many times, you better not let this fucking magic life interfere with us. I'm not a part of that world, and I don't want to be a part of it. And as soon as that world creeps into her life, she's like, see ya, I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, it completely destroys John. And so she, she's, she's incredibly important, and she's also, she's a... She's a character that's very strong in her convictions, mm -hmm. and she doesn't she doesn't bend on them. And she got her own spinoff uh, one shot as well. Oh, did she really? Called Heartland. Okay. It's all about her moving back to Belfast in the late '90s, and it's uh, 
again, nothing supernatural about it at all. It's just her coming home and dealing with the reality of living in a country that's so torn apart by religion, mm. the Protestants and the Catholics. And, like people talking about going to get a pint while they have to walk by a giant column of tanks and armed soldiers everywhere. Really just gut-wrenching story and, and really well done. Do you have it? Yeah. Can I read it? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'd love to. Because there is a line in here where he asks her, like, have you been back to Belfast? And she's like, nope. You know, just thought it best to keep that part of my life shorn, for yeah. lack of a better word. The writer Garth Ennis does a good job of, even though, like you said, she shows up at the end, he does a very good job of weaving her into the story in a way that doesn't feel forced. And you feel the impact of her and John's relationship in just a few panels. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like, oh, well, this is hokey, you yeah. know. It, it flows pretty naturally. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, too, because a lot of writers do the whole character surrogate. They'll create a character that's basically just them inserted into the story. And you see that a lot. Um, like, my favorite example is Luke Skywalker. That's just George Lucas. <laughs> that's jo George Lucas took the Hidden Fortress and just threw himself into it. And, I mean, tons of authors and writers do that. Oh, another example. The show Kingdom Hospital. I haven't seen it. It's from the mid-2000s. So it's based on a Lars von Trier miniseries called Kingdom about this crazy supernatural hospital. Well, Stephen King wrote an adaptation of it called Kingdom Hospital. Oh, I've heard of it. Okay. Yeah. And the main character is just Stephen King. It's a writer who gets hit by a car <laughs> and uh, has to go into this hospital. That subplot isn't in the original, but it's in, yeah. Anyway, regardless. <laughs> so writer surrogate. So Kit Ryan is an obvious character surrogate for Garth Ennis. Okay. I think it's interesting because she's just as bullheaded as he is. And I feel like, I feel like whenever she's talking, she's right. And since he's writing the story, that's just him speaking through her. Okay. And it's an interesting take to me because I feel like the obvious choice would just be to throw yourself into John Constantine. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, if I'm writing this character, then he's going to say what I want to say. God damn it. But mm -hmm. through, throughout the relationship between Kit and John, Almost every time they have an argument, he's very clearly in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and she sets him straight. Yeah, and she doesn't let him off the hook for it. You know? <laughs> and again, she's a character who, if she says something, that's the way it's going to be. Like, she tells him, early on in their relationship, this better not fuck with our lives. And if it does, I'm out of here. And then it does, and she's out of there. <laughs> there, you, there you have it. And I really like the, for lack of a better word, the dichotomy between her and Ellie. Because again, if you're just coming to this book, you really don't, know well you don't know anything about ellie that much and you said earlier that this was her first appearance yeah okay yeah you really don't know much about her um and the two women are just so different and ellie is so mysterious in here but i love this where is it what page is it on this panel where she shows up to talk to john and she's just kind of this classically pretty woman and she, you know, nothing really remarkable about her. She's good looking. And you're just like, okay, you know, in their past, something surely. They know each other somehow. And then there's just this one panel where she goes from this, like, regular woman to, like, she looks absolutely predatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, whoa! <laughs> the red eyes and face <laughs> tilted down like a animal about to strike. Exactly, exactly. And I love this, how John tells her, like, you know, Considering what you are, you're, you're actually pretty decent. And she's like, I think I'm just playing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're like, oh. 
there's something going on yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> Ellie comes back a lot throughout the series. She's, she and John have a very mercurial relationship. Like, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies. Sometimes he's trying to fuck her, sometimes she's trying to kill him. <laughs> and it's just constant back and forth. She's probably the least consistently written character in the entire series. But every time she shows up, it's a fucking joy. <laughs> <laughs> like, there you are. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, she's a fucking demon. Who cares if she's consistently written or not? She can, right. she can be crazy. Sometimes John fucks her over. Sometimes he, she fucks him over. And there's this constant uh, tug of war between them. But going back to Kit Ryan for a minute, I mean, she's essentially just the love interest. And that is a role. That's a, that's a completely thankless role in stories. <laughs> and it's so easy to make that character boring or shrill or just get the fuck out of the way so the action can happen, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the fact that the core of the story is John finding his humanity, you know, it's, it's all about him like trying to kind of reconnect with humanity, which succeeds to various degrees because <laughs> that, that's a reoccurring thing with him is just trying to be a better person and then, no, never mind, I'm going to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the core of it. But she's not necessarily the anchor. I don't, I don't know how to say that. Like it's like she she's an obvious example of what he what he should aspire to. You know, mm-hmm. like just a normal person that he can have a normal life with. But she's also she's not like a prize to be won. Mm-hmm. Like she's still her own character and she's still her own person. And she's not with John because he overcame his demons and she's there for the taking. She's with him because she wants to be with him now. She needs someone in her life. He needs someone in his life. And they're, they're together because they want to be together. I like that. She's not a damsel in distress, I guess. No, no. Or a muse or anything yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And then, again, once she's ready to go, she leaves. She doesn't do it to, like, teach him a lesson. Or, I mean, obviously, there are repercussions on both sides of that. Anytime there's, there's a fracture, you know, there's, there are the natural repercussions of a relationship falling apart. But it's not... Uh, I don't know. It just feels very real. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree. Um, in that vein, usually when there is this kind of relationship in, again, any popular media, the woman always gives this big virtuous speech, like, this is why I'm walking out on you. And you've seen it so many times that eventually you're like, yeah, 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 you guys are totally going to get back together. Yeah. And it usually revolves around... Uh, her saving him or being some type, again, like you said, being some type of goal. And I don't, I haven't read any comic books after this in terms of how their relationship grows or Mm -hmm. goes in another direction, becomes romantic, but they just do a really good job of establishing an existing friendship in this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he says that she's the only one of my mates, girlfriends who didn't hate me yeah. and that kind of made me love her from the beginning <laughs> and it's like yeah you just get the uh the idea that she accepts him for who he is yeah but she also has her own boundaries like you said like yeah, yeah. i'm not interested in the stuff you do <laughs> yeah and when their relationship ends i think i mentioned it's, it's a storyline where uh john's trying to get back at gabriel mm-hmm. and that gets him to run afoul of some neo-nazis and they come to john's house to fuck him up and Kit's there. And so, like, they break in, and they're like, Rah! and she's like, she grabs a knife from the table, and she's like, well, come on, then. <laughs> and one of them lunges at her, and she stabs him in the dick. <laughs> and then the other one, I can't remember what she does, but she, like, claws his face or something. But uh, they both, they both, like, limp away. And then uh, she calls John, and is like, well, it's over. Like, your life, you know, your dangerous life uh, 
encroached on mine, so I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like that. I actually think that's refreshing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So many times in you see that like there's some outlandish circumstances where it's like, well, I'll love you regardless. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, I almost got shanked by neo-Nazis. Thanks though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you think? I'm curious of the first of the fallen's final form during the summoning. Which one is the final? Oh, the, uh, antichrist look. Yes. Did you, so did you notice this when he's introduced? The way his feet step down. You mentioned that. Yeah, that's yeah. the same way. And because remember in the movie, it's like all black tar. And I said, basically the only reason that's there is to match that image. You were absolutely right. But they couldn't have him have like wounded, bleeding feet because this that movie was clearly shot to be PG-13. Mm-hmm. So they just slapped tar on him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I really liked that. The kind of like corruption of the, uh, the Trinity. And the fact that the thorns grow out of his head. It looks very painful. <laughs> and then the other, yeah, because there's, there's him as the Jesus type, I guess. And then the other two, uh, Beelzebub and Azazel, taking the other, you know, two spots on the Trinity. The art is, uh, who's, who's William the, Simpson. William Simpson. Yes, I, I think he does a great job. Yeah. I think I mentioned my only complaint with the art is that it's all, like, there's not a lot of variation in color. That is true. It's all very beige, orange. Tan. <laughs> a lot of pinks. Yeah. But I, I have nothing against the art. My only problem really with it is that it's not Steve Dillon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't read a Garth Ennis comic and not think that it should be Steve Dillon. <laughs> so what, did they not know each other at this time? I don't know. I, I don't know when they first started working together, but Steve Dillon did an issue of Hellblazer a couple issues after this uh, concluded, and then Steve Dillon was the regular artist for, I don't know, quite a few issues that uh, Garth Ennis wrote. And then, of course, they both did Preacher together, like a whole 66-issue run they did together. And then they also did Punisher together. <laughs> it's like they, they, they work together really well, and I, I love Steve Dillon's art matched with Ennis's words, you know? <laughs> She's a natural fit, and so I... Any, any chance that I have to see that, I'd like. Well, I'll have to delve deeper on that one. So I mentioned before that this this issue was adapted into the movie, Constantine, but did you know that it's also been adapted again? Really? To a couple episodes of Legends of Tomorrow, oh. a TV show. Because John Constantine's on that now as a regular. He's been a regular for the last couple of seasons. But they adapted, um, they adapted Dangerous Habits tied it into the character of Astra, which is a little girl that John accidentally got killed when he was younger. Been weighing on him, and yeah. they So they adapt those, they kind of push those two stories together. But one of the things that they do that I fucking hate, and they actually suggest this in the actual Hellblazer comic years later, is that the cancer wasn't really his fault. <laughs> and there's an issue of Hellblazer where he meets this doppelganger of himself, from a different dimension. And it's strongly suggested that he's the reason that John got cancer. <laughs> and in the show, Legends of Tomorrow, Astra kind of manipulates events so that John gets cancer instead of as an old man, he gets cancer now. And so then John's like forced to get, and it doesn't have the same conclusion. It's like his friends band together to help him. And it's just one of the, like, if you're not going to, if you're not going to stick the landing on this, then just don't fucking adapt it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, what are you... How do you think you're going to improve on that? Yeah, well, it's just such a shockingly clever ending. <laughs> right. That that yeah, there's no there's no way to do that better. So don't 
if you're not going to keep that part of the story the same, there's so many other things you could change or adapt or shift around or whatever. But if you're not going to retain the ending, then just don't fucking do it. Exactly. And it comes into play again with, like, he's got survivor's remorse. Yeah. You know, like when his friend Matt yeah, dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so emotionally layered. And, yeah, if you're not going to stick the landing, don't do it. Just reiterate that again. I have not actually seen Legends of Tomorrow, so I can't provide commentary on that. But It's a decent enough show. Um, I've watched, I don't know, I've seen most of it. But it, it's, like, it's like a really fun caper show. Time travel and magic and all that. Mm-hmm. And John fits really well on that series because he's like the acerbic asshole amongst superheroes. <laughs> and it, it works really well, but just that storyline being adapted, like, mm, I don't like that. <laughs> like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> know your audience. <laughs> know what you're working with. I still think the movie version is worse, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, and that's... Uh... Like you said, they wanted to keep a PG-13 rating, but what I really appreciated here at the end of the summoning, after he tricks them and tells them this is the deal, and they begrudgingly go, okay, like, not only like in the movie where Peter Stormar rips the cancer out of his lungs, but like, here, because they're so pissed at at him, like, they rip him open, they take the cancer out of his lungs, it looks horribly painful, and then they burn him. Yeah, yeah, they tear him <laughs> apart, burn him, and he's, like, reborn. <laughs> yeah. And, like, the whole thing hurts, and you can tell that it hurts. <laughs> and then I love how, after that, like, the first thing he does is light up a cigarette. <laughs> right. Which is, again, so diametrically opposed to the movie, and chewing gum at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, again, the emotional core of this book, and a very human thread that we're all uncomfortable talking about is that we often work against ourselves. Yeah. And there's that great story that his friend Matt tells him in the cancer ward where, you know, after he got diagnosed and his doctor was like, you know, you've got cancer, you've got liver problems, you've got all the shit that's wrong with you. And he said, instead of like, you know, making efforts to turn his life around, he just went out and partied and did what he usually did thinking that he was just going to drop dead And he's like, one night I'm in the bar and I like pass out and shit myself. And now here I am. Like most of us, like we all think that we're going to die very cleanly and quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and like the best horror, sci-fi, speculative fiction, whatever, this is at the core a story about a human person dealing with human problems. Exactly. This is a, a, a man who is scared of dying and is so self destructive that. Even when he's at his end, he doesn't know what else to do, but just continue being destructive. Right, exactly. Like, he wakes up from a nightmare, and the first thing he does is, like, grab his cigarettes yeah. to calm exactly. down. <laughs> and you can just kind of tell that he's someone who really doesn't take that great care of himself because his apartment is just, like, totally yeah. trashed out. <laughs> yeah, sure. Even though he does dress impeccably, I gotta say, I love Constantine's style. Yeah. It's funny because it's always implied that he's, like, dirty, because, you know, like, it's supposed to be he's wearing the same shirt, same pants, the same trench coat. But, like, it just always looks so fucking cool. Like he does. He may, he may <laughs> smell like piss and vomit, but he sure looks goddamn cool. He does. <laughs> to his credit, yes. I almost got my hands on what's probably the most coveted Hellblazer collectible of all time. That from Comic-Con, I think it was 2010, I don't know, a few years ago. They did a Hellblazer panel, brought out a trench coat, 
and all of the people on the panel, like some Hellblazer artists and writers, doodled on it and wrote on it and oh. everything. And then they auctioned, or not, not even auctioned it off, they, uh, it was like a random drawing in the crowd. They gave it to somebody. And a few months ago, the guy that owned this coat, on Twitter, they were doing a uh, Black Lives Matter uh, fundraiser. And I can't remember the name of it. It was a bunch of comics professionals doing this. And it was all, you know, like you bid on certain things from these comic creators. When you win it, you um, have to donate the amount that you want it by to a specific charity. And they gave this list of, of approved charities. And it was a really well-done fundraiser. And this comic artist, or this comic fan who won that was like, I'm putting this up. Start bidding. And I was like, fuck. I was like, $250. That was my opening salvo. And I stuck with it until it got up to like 600 oh, wow. And I was like, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> and I, I, had it, I had it on lock at like about $300 for five days. And at the very end, this guy was like, no, I want it. <laughs> and we got into a bidding war. And uh, the comic book writer, Gail Simone, she was, uh, she was the one that was, like, officiating it at the time. I mean, like, oh, Colby's got this one. How about this guy? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun to, like, to be in that bidding war. But at the end of the day, I still, still wish I would have won it. But <laughs> It was for a good cause. Exactly. I was going to say, if nothing else... <laughs> If nothing else, I'm, I may not have donated any money, but because of me, it got significantly higher than it would have. There you go. There you go. Oh, I hope that guy, whoever got it, is very happy. Yeah, I hope he fucking dies. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he bequeaths me that jacket. <laughs> Thinking about you the whole time when he wears it. <laughs> and he, he was an artist himself, the guy that won, and he said something... Because I was like, damn it. Like, I realized, oh, man, well, you know, good luck and hope you enjoy it. And he was like, hey, thanks, man. You know, like, I'm, I might uh, throw some art up myself if you want to do some bidding. I'm like, yeah, fuck you, man. I don't <laughs> want your piece of shit drawing. <laughs> You're like, that is a poor consolation prize, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I want a drawing of me wearing that coat, flipping you off. <laughs> piece of shit. <laughs> I want to put that coat on and go out in it, damn you. <laughs> Oh, so close, so close. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, so that, that, to me, that's like the ultimate Hellblazer collectible. Mm. And I was within spitting distance of getting it. But. That is the ultimate collectible. For just a fraction of a second, I was like, he's not going to stay the holy gun, is he? He's oh, no, like, no, no. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> so, can you think of anything else about this book that you think we need to point out or that people should be aware of? Um, no, just read it. <laughs> <laughs> I did have one last thing I want to talk about, though which is a list that I've compiled of better Hellblazer adaptations than the film Constantine. Oh, please do go on. <laughs> so the first one is actually, I bring this up because I didn't bring it up during the commentary. Have you ever seen The Prophecy? Yes. Christopher Walken? So here's why I brought it up. It's not really, I mean, it's a supernatural mystery horror kind of story. But the movie Constantine totally ripped off The Prophecy's plot. Yeah. It's the same fucking plot. So with the angel Gabriel... Uh, trying to wipe out humanity because he's jealous that they get love from God and he doesn't or whatever. An exorcist and a cop team up to stop him. And in the end, they call down Lucifer, played by Viggo Mortensen in that movie, mm -hmm. to stop Gabriel. That's right. And in both instances, Gabriel isn't killed. He's made human. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I haven't watched The Prophecy for years and years, but I remember liking it. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. It's got a really good cast, too. It does. Uh, Christopher Walken, Elias Coteus, 
Virginia Madsen, Eric Stoltz, and um, oh, there's one more I'm forgetting. Oh, and Viggo Mortensen was the devil. Yeah. I'm sure there's a couple other actors here or there that I'm not remembering. But um, it also has two sequels that are of lesser quality, but they're still decent. It's a fun little low-budget trilogy of apocalyptic horror movies. And I mean, fuck, Christopher Walken. Can't go wrong with that. <laughs> no. But yeah, you're right. That Constantine totally, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the only reason I bring up this is because the prophecy is a better version of this story. It is. It's not much of a Hellblazer story, but it's just a better version. And Christopher Walken is fucking magnetic, especially in the first movie, as the villain. Like, there's a part where somebody says, God damn to him. And he goes, you're going to have to watch it with that language. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, a man's a national treasure. Yeah. And it's just got, it's got a fun mythology within the movie of angels. They all, like, whenever they sit down, they all perch on the back of chairs <laughs> instead of sitting on them. Like, it's just, it's really, it's got some cool imagery, and it's a fun, weird 90s throwback horror adventure movie. Uh, okay, so the next one, uh, A Dark Song. We brought this up before. It's a fucking perfect Hellblazer adaptation. Oh, yeah. It's just a weird, dark story of two desperate people getting caught in a weird world of magic and and ritual and violence and and it's so like the last few minutes of it are so fucking creepy and visceral and and yeah and and it's it's all about the cost of magic what you're willing to sacrifice to to get to that like next level of reality or whatever right which is something that's a core of of hellblazer and that, uh, again, was completely missed in the movie. <laughs> to me, Dark Song is probably the best Hellblazer adaptation ever. And the next one is Angel Heart, which I brought up um, a few weeks ago. It's a noir horror story with Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. I remember you mentioning yeah. it now. Mickey Rourke plays this private investigator named Harry Angel. He's like unkempt, always smoking, wearing a trench coat. And Robert De Niro tasks him with tracking down this guy. And it's abundantly obvious at the beginning of the movie. So Robert De Niro's character is named Louis Cipher. Mm-hmm. Okay. A little on the nose <laughs> Exactly. <there. laughs> and he's got like long fingernails. He's just always creepy. He's like, oh, I wonder. So it's obviously like he's trying to, he's trying to get the detective to track down this guy because he wants his soul. Mm-hmm. And then it gets twisty from there and you find out that who he's searching for may not actually be the person that he's searching for. And it goes into like voodoo and uh, what's her name? Um, uh... Lisa Bonet, isn't it? Oh, really? It was actually, I think it was her first film role, and she got fired from the Cosby show because she has a nude scene in it. (laughs) She has a really, like, intense sex scene with Mickey Rourke with, like, blood spraying from the ceiling, and it's it's a really intense, weird scene. But, yeah, it's it's funny that uh, Bill Cosby took the high ground against her. (laughs) She got the last laugh on that. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hey, she's fucking Aquaman now. So. Right? Exactly. <laughs> she's okay. Uh, then uh, the next one was The Order. Was Heath Ledger? Heath Ledger. Okay. I have not Heath seen Ledger, that. Mark Addy, and good old Robocop himself, Peter Weller. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah not, my, not the best movie in the world. It was very clearly, it clearly suffers from some last minute rewrites, but it's, it's a fun mystery. Oh, Benno Furman is in it also. Uh, original title was The Sin Eater, because it's a story about a sin eater, which I don't know if you know what that is, but... It's Appalachia-type stuff, isn't it? I mean, who knows? It may be, maybe now, but originally this is, this is like an old 
12th century or whatever, maybe even further back. Oh, okay. Uh, belief that if you eat a meal over the dying body of someone, you'll take their sins upon yourself. Okay. So they can get into heaven. So that this person was almost like a scapegoat. Like they would just take the village's sins so that everyone else could get into heaven. Okay, that, that is really interesting. I didn't realize it was so old, but like where I first heard of it, it was like old mountain folklore where, yeah. you know, when you had the body in the house, like back when mm-hmm. families did their own funeral preparations, like you would put a piece of bread on top of a dead body and then the sin eater would come in and same mm-hmm. concept. Yeah. And for, I, I, I have no idea if that's a real thing or not, but it's a belief that goes back quite a ways. But anyway, that's what the movie's about. It's about this immortal sin eater. And priest who is uh, gets entangled in his story, and then it's like this dark, uh, evil religious sect that's involved. And Peter Weller, like when they first introduced him in the movie, it's like, oh, he's the bad guy. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> I know you can shroud it in mystery all you want and give him a weird mask, but he's the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're up to no good. <laughs> but he's great in it. Heath Ledger does a pretty good Constantine impression in it. <laughs> Mark Addy is kind of the Chaz character. And, oh, and Shannon Sossman is in it, too. What is she in? Uh, she was in A Knight's Tale. Oh, okay. With those same three actors. Oh, yes. <laughs> Shannon Sossman, Mark Addy, and Heath Ledger. There you go. And it's the same director. Oh, wow. <laughs> A reunion of sorts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's nothing, like, it's not anything amazing, but it's a, it's a fun kind of Hellblazer light story. Mm-hmm. And it ends with one of those, like, ironic twist endings as well that's so popular in Hellblazer, or Vertigo in general. And then the last one is The Ninth Gate. Have you ever seen that? I have, but I've only seen it once. Okay. That's a Roman Polanski film with Johnny Depp as like a book collector. Mm-hmm. And he's tasked by this dude, oh fuck, I remember the character's name. But this guy played by uh, Frank Langella. He's fucking great in it. <laughs> as like tracking down this book that was purported to be written by the devil. And it's a cool, twisty... One of the things I really like about that movie is that the supernatural shit is all on the fringes. Like, there's a couple scenes, like, there's this woman that's following him who is implied might be an angel or a demon or something, but there's never really an answer. And there's just this one scene where Johnny Depp is getting his ass kicked, and she comes up behind this guy, and the way she moves, it almost looks like, whoa, is she just flying? Like, <laughs> but it's not... Again, and it's never addressed again. <laughs> wow. I really like that. That kind of supernatural shit isn't isn't at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Well, all these movies sound very enjoyable. Yeah, and that was my last one. And uh, Johnny Depp's character in that is very Constantine-ish. It's smoking constantly, and he's just always fed up. It opens with him doing a con on this guy. There's like this family who is selling their dad's antique books, as their their dad has just had a stroke, so he's like sitting there watching, but he can't talk. And uh, Johnny Depp is talking through his collection, and he's like, you know, some of these are worth quite a bit of money, and I wouldn't take a penny less than a million for this section or whatever. He's like, this, uh, th- this edition of Don Quixote here isn't particularly valuable, but I have a soft spot for it, so I could probably uh, let go, or I could probably buy it from you for, I don't know, 400 or whatever. And as he's saying this, the dad is, like, gripping his chair. He's like... (laughs) (laughs) And then as he leaves, he's passing another book curator, and he's like, oh, yeah, they've got a great collection. They seem to think it's worth quite a bit, though. I don't know what to tell you. Sneaky. (laughs) See, like you alluded to, all better adaptations of Hellblazer than... The actual movie based on Hellblazer. I mean, like, all of these movies, they they don't have that 
black and white morality, mm-hmm. which the Constantine movie does. You're either good or you're bad. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, it's like we were talking about. It is so dumbed down. Like, even if you've, again, never read a single Hellblazer comic and you have no idea who the character is, it's like you see the same thing in an episode of, like, Supernatural. Yeah, exactly. Which is, again, brought this over in the comic. But it's another thing that just confuses me about the love that people have for that movie. It's so weirdly well-regarded, and I always hear people say, well, just don't think of it as a Hellblazer movie. Like, well, it doesn't matter. It's still weird. Like, it's still cheesy and poorly thought out. Yeah, it's not that good of a movie. It's the weird, the the weird fucking needlessly complicated mythology they give it after dumbing the mythology down so much. I don't don't get it. I don't like it. I want to talk about it. (laughs) Why? Why? uh, Read Dangerous Habits. You'll walk away with a much more... Fulfilled sense of storytelling. Did you, do you think that you need to read like the entirety, like the forty issues that precede it, to get it? Ah, that's a very good question because it brings us back to a previous conversation where I asked you if someone was going to jump into Hellblazer, where should they jump in? And you actually recommended this. Yeah. And so to answer your question, no, not at all. Like I am definitely don't have the knowledge of the character that you do and uh, his history. But just coming into this, I was like, this is a great story. Yeah. Like, I would like to read more Hellblazer. Um, so, yeah, and like you said, the, the names in here, I didn't realize that so many of them just were introduced in this book. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. Like, you don't have to know who those people are in order to walk away having just experienced a very well-told narrative. And as I now remember, the first of the fall is introduced in here. <laughs> <laughs> Did I leave that in? Did I leave my fuck up in? I don't know. We'll see when I edit it. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> oh, but I do have to say, because I've brought this up in prior episodes, I think, when we were doing our Weird West commentary, um, I was actually hooked on this book the moment I started to read the introduction, and I realized that Garth Ennis opens it with a Josie, outlaw Josie Wales oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Awesome. Okay. And then he finishes the whole thing on a lyrics from uh, the Pogue song, Rainy Night in Soho. Uh-huh. I was like, well done, sir. He fucking loves the Pogues, too. There's a later in the series, uh, there's a volume called Rake at the Gates of Hell, which is the name of a Pogue song. And there's a, I think it's an issue called 40, where John turns 40. Because <laughs> again, he ages in real time. Um, but there's an issue where he has a birthday party and this character called the Lord of the Dance, who's... Uh, Again, that's another story in here <laughs> by him, but uh, this character shows up and he talks to John. And he's like, you know, John, you remind me of a song by the Pogues called The Rake at the Gates of Hell. And he, like, explains the meaning of the song to him. But, yeah, he definitely is a, is a Pogues fan. <laughs> Way to weave it in there. Okay, so we're at the end of the show now. I think we're at end the end of the show, show time. Now. So, like we do every time at the end of the show, I fumble to figure out what to say. <laughs> uh, like and subscribe this podcast. And... You know, if you feel like it, share it with a friend. Share it with a lot of friends. <laughs> share it with your enemies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that too. Share it with everybody you know, please. And obviously, this one is a definite vertigo. Oh, yeah, for us. fuck. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a big vertigo. I spent, I spent hours agonizing over this uh, rating system. <laughs> Used my considerable talents to create one that's so fucking clever and then i just forget to do it every time that's the burden i'm like i'm like cassandra forced to see the future and no one no one believing me 
I have, I have such incredible talent, <laughs> and yet I forget to use it. Alas, but we circle around. It's cool. <laughs> we always come back. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a big vertigo for me. I mean, this is again. I think I think this is the second Hellblazer comic I ever read, and it's just one of my favorite. I mean, it's a fucking classic. Everyone knows that it's a classic, and that's why because it's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> read this and enjoy. Yeah. All right, end of the show time. I I'm gonna cut out the last time, and we're just <laughs> doing it fresh. End of the show time. Um, like and subscribe and share with your grandma and her sewing club. <laughs> Yes, yes. Share the love. Spread it around. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Vertigo Voices and just Vertigo Voices on (laughs) Instagram. Okay. You got it. Always going to ask that because I don't have Instagram. (laughs) Uh, Email us at Vertigo or email us. Email us at vertigovoices at gmail.com. That sounds weird. There's too many ats. I don't like the <laughs> emails at 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 at, at. Um, And special thanks. Do we have a theme song yet? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll find out. If we do have a theme song by now, then special thanks to that immensely talented individual that created a theme song for us. And if not, then everyone I know who plays instruments who have not provided a theme song can go fucking die in a fire. <laughs> Where are you guys? You know I need this! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's it. What are we doing? Oh, next we're doing LXG. We are. The movie, not the comic. Alright, um, uh, so yeah, that's it. We're good. Goodbye. Bye.